Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Friday, August 18th, and as you know by now on the Friday show... We like to rip up the usual format and do a deep dive into a big picture issue. Now, uh, this is a big picture issue, but it's also one that on the ground has very significant implications for community safety, for public health. And as a result, it's been very heavily politicized. We've seen in the course of the drug crisis in Canada, massive increases in just one metric alone, the number of opioid deaths per year. Now, I live in Ontario, and I can say that for years, we all used to look at the drug problem as being a British Columbia thing. You'd look out and say, oh, well, yeah, well, all those things they're doing in Vancouver are not affecting our city. And uh, very quickly, my own city of London, Ontario, became one of the hotbeds of this drug and addiction crisis. And now we're seeing there really isn't a community in Canada that is immune to this. And there have been all sorts of proposals that have been pushed forward under the auspices of harm reduction, the uh, most contentious of which I'd say is so-called safe supply, which is predicated on this belief that uh, the dangers in the drug supply are among the most pressing threats to drug users. So if we can eliminate that variable, we can make drug use somewhat safer. Now, is this working? Well, there have been a a lot of very conflicting perspectives on this and perspectives that have shifted. Uh, Just this week, for example, there was, uh, now this is not a, a safe supply issue, But there was a story about a clinic in Toronto, in Leslieville, that had to apologize after they were giving out free chocolate in exchange for needles, which obviously the parents of children in that area weren't exactly too keen on. So there are a lot of different threads to pull on this issue. So we may go in some different directions here, but I have a a tremendous panel of guests that have all done a a great deal of work on this, either in the clinical setting, the research setting, or in the media setting, and in some cases in in all three forums. So we'll bring into this show Adam Zivo, who is a columnist with the National Post and and wrote a tremendous piece uh, back in May that really delved into this issue from a lot of different angles. Dr. Julian Summers, who is a clinical psychologist and addiction specialist and a health sciences professor at Simon Fraser University. And Dr. Sharon Koivu, who is an addiction medicine consultant, actually in my neck of the woods in, in uh, London, Ontario, with London Health Sciences Center. Uh, all three of you, it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for joining me today. Let me start with you, Dr. Koivu, because I know you've actually evolved yourself on on this issue quite a bit, and and you've not come at this because of any political reason. You've just done what I think researchers are supposed to do, which is followed the science and have found that safe supply isn't really what you once thought it was. Um, Yes, thank you. Um, Certainly, my involvement in this is is working with inpatients at a hospital um, in London and in St. Thomas. Um, and I guess originally, um, when I started working on um, the drug of choice in London was hydromorph content. And through working with patients, I was able to identify that hydromorph content was leading to um, an outbreak or an epidemic in our area, essentially, of heart valve infections, particularly the first valve um, in the heart called the tricuspid valve. Um, we also, because of this particular drug, hydromorph cotton, had an, an outbreak of HIV. So when first when safe supply first started in our area, it was actually not in a response to fentanyl. Um, we did have some fentanyl 
problems. When we had a fentanyl overdose in London, it was most likely related to using um, diverted patches or using the fentanyl patches. But Safe Supply started um, to help street level workers, street, street level sex workers get off of hydromorph content and onto something that we believed would be safer, which was immediate release hydromorphone, referred to as dilaudid. So it's the same drug. This wasn't a treatment for fentanyl. This was specifically to get people off of hydromorph content. I was one of the people that thought it was sounded like a good idea. It sounded like a good idea on paper um, because of the problems we were having in London at the time. But once it was in place, I started seeing other problems. So yes, um, HIV, um, we no longer have the outbreak of HIV. We were able to get on top of that for many reasons with a community effort. Um, and our endocarditis rates have improved. But what I started seeing clinically was an increase in other infections. So since this started in London, we have had an increase in essentially all other infections that are related to injection drug use. The ones that particularly alarmed me was I started seeing an increase in spine infections. So an increase in what we call epidural abscesses, which for some people the, the, can cause horrific pain, horrific suffering, and often leads to paraplegia or quadriplegia. Um, and currently I have a patient, I've been working with a patient who's quadriplegic and a patient who's paraplegic and one that we're hoping will be able to walk but related to injecting. And just like when I was seeing people with the heart valve infections, I spent a lot of time asking patients what they were taking. And really the common thread for almost all patients that I was seeing with this increase in infection was using Dilaudid, often either from the safe supply program or diverted from it. And I think it's, you know, now people often will say, well, it's from the fentanyl. At the time when I started seeing these infections, we still did not have a problem with fentanyl in London. We do now, and we can talk about how I think it's related to the increase in opioids in London. But at the time, it wasn't. The, the two main drugs were crystal methamphetamine and Dilaudid. And um, the, really the common thread I found was, was the um, Dilaudid. It led to other problems too that we, you know, with with diversion, um, making it cheaper, making it more accessible. But I think we can. Those were the first things that really got me to to start being aware and critical. And I took that information back to to the community, um, and was kind of surprised that it it wasn't kind of welcomed as um, a place we needed to start doing research. Well, and this was obviously a story that is somewhat familiar to you, Dr. Summers. I, I know you did uh, something very similar. You followed the science. You looked at the effects of this. And, and you had quite a bit of pushback for, for conclusions you drew as well that were very similar and that safe supply w was not, in fact, safer. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Andrew. And I, I'm fascinating listening to Dr. Koivu's remarks because in a, in a very specific way, they are actually, uh, it's an identical experience in that um, as we listened, Dr. Koibu's, um initial support was restricted or was focused, I should say, perhaps, on a specific uh, client or patient population, a particular context in which um, a substitution program 
could result in better engaging um, sex workers at very high risk in a variety of ways, and um, and then seeing the unintended consequences of the implementation of that service in other patient groups or other other segments of society. And these these uh, risks are not only the acute risks that Dr. Koivu and, and other clinicians see in their practices, but also longer term risks that they might also see, but that become more apparent when we group people together and look at uh, uh, the, the the entire population. So it's well known that long term administration, self-administration of opioids results in, in chronic risks as well as acute level risks. And so there are a variety of ways in which this uh, program, this this approach poses risks. It also, um, I, I think more fundamentally, mischaracterizes how we um, would best address harms associated with substance use, including addiction in the population. It has nothing to do with a focus on supply. That's the approach of the war on drugs, is to focus on supply. And we've learned in these last 60 years that that doesn't result in much measurable improvement in our local populations. It's important, but it doesn't result in much measurable improvement. Where all of the research has backed opportunities for progress is on demand reduction. Focus on the conditions that put people at high risk where resorting to addictions, addictions that put them and others at great risk, is a preferred approach to coping. There are ways of helping people, but it involves focusing on those very demand drivers. And we've been lied to, I, I think, by by leaders, some some deliberately, some innocently. Um, and we've opened floodgates for profit interests to enter into the field. And that takes it well away from a focus on particular patient groups, high-risk sex workers and others, and seeks where's the biggest bottom line return. Now, we see companies now... Um, formally seeking investors in order to back an expected expansion of so-called safer supply in Canada initially and then internationally. I'm, I'm simply summarizing from their promotional materials to investors. And Adam knows more about this than me. Some of what I've learned has been through his reporting. But the backlash was was severe. Um, unlike anything I've encountered previously in, in my career, um, Adam's also covered that. Th thanks, Adam. <laughs> Um, that, uh, you know, bringing to light that, 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 that the backlash is really a big part of the story here. Under what circumstances do scientists who have no evidence to support what they're um, advocating for jump aggressively on someone who's raising, in, in our case, myself and my co-authors, reasonable grounds for concern? How much is this program going to cost per year? And importantly, there are several concerns, but what's the exit strategy? If we succeed in engaging disaffected, disenfranchised people, remember, safe supply is not a treatment program. It's framed as a way of engaging people who are alienated from care. Great. Once we engage them in care, what are our next steps? And there are none. And there's a flat refusal to talk about it. And it sounds perhaps cynical to say this, but I believe there's a deliberate refusal because the entire profit motive hinges on perpetuating people's suffering so they remain good customers. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. 
you've touched on, I think, an important aspect of this, which is the motivation. And I, I wanted to bring you in on this, Adam, because I, I do feel there's been a fair bit of mission creep on harm reduction itself. I remember originally when we were talking about Insight in BC many years ago, and, and there were obviously some concerns about that. A lot of the argument for just supervised uh, injection sites, not providing supply, which at the time I think would have been seen as insane, but the arguments in favor of it were that, okay, we bring people into a space where we can then give them the resources to get clean and get off drugs. There was always that, whether it was honest or not, there always seemed to be this idea that if we bring people into the system, so to speak, we can work with them and, and help them get off drugs. With safe supply, I don't hear those arguments anymore. And, and maybe I've missed something, but it actually, to me, strikes me as though they're, they're giving up on that idea of, of trying to fight addiction. And, and I don't know if that's an accurate read on my part, Adam. Like, what's, what is the, the stated purpose of this program? Well, I mean, we have to keep in mind that there are different stakeholders who have different motivations. So there's one part of this camp which is ideologically motivated by this idea that drug use is a right, that you can use drugs safely, that harms associated with drug use come from the criminalization of these drugs not from the drugs themselves. And for these people, they don't think it's a problem if someone is chronically using opioids. Uh, they think that's perfectly fine. Um, and so for them, you know, they're not profit motivated. They're just very ideological. And they espouse this kind of strange strain of libertarianism that prioritizes the individual liberty of the drug user above all else, including community good, right? And so we see that now where we uh, aren't allowed to criticize people for being addicted to, you know, various drugs and harming others because that's imposing on their right to use drugs euphorically. Um, now, there's a, another group of stakeholders who seem to be more profit-oriented. And as Julian mentioned, there are different, definitely companies that are looking to make uh, quite a bit of money off of this. So one thing that I became aware of earlier in the year was the existence of a new company known as the Safer Supply Streaming Corporation. Uh, which is currently seeking investors so that it can uh, capture the entire value chain of safer supply. Uh, basically, uh, the people who are leading this program are people who have had a history of monetizing on psychedelics and cannabis. So they're looking at this in a sort of recreational lens, not, not, not like an addiction treatment lens. And I think that's really concerning. I think it's concerning that for-profit actors are coming into this space uh, with no real background in addiction medicine and seem to be think seem to be conceptualizing opioids and cocaine as like one big party. Um, now, you have these two poles and you also have people who are a little bit on the middle. Uh, and one example here would be, let's say, Perry Kendall, who was the former public health officer in BC. So in his capacity as public health officer, he uh, declared the opioid epidemic to be a public health crisis which then allowed for changes in the policy environment in BC to allow for the approval of therapeutic use of heroin and the importation of heroin without getting, you know, seeking approval from the federal government. Um, after he advocated for all of these changes, he then went on to create a for-profit company known as uh, Fair Price Pharma, which, you know, coincidentally specialized in importing and producing heroin. And then he received a contract with the federal government to do just that which is very questionable. I mean, there seems to be a very strong conflict of interest here. Now, from my conversations with other people who are involved in this space, it seems like he is genuinely concerned about the well-being 
of people who are in addiction. But at the same time, one has to wonder how pure can his motives be if he's starting a for-profit company. Um, as another example, you have Dr. Evan Wood, who founded the BCCSU, the British Columbia Center on Substance Use, which is very influential in the addiction policy space. And when he was running that organization, they accepted dollars, they accepted funding from cannabis companies, and then produced low-quality research, which suggested that cannabis would be an adequate response, cannabis consumption would be an adequate response to opioid addiction, uh, research that completely contradicted higher quality studies being produced elsewhere in Canada. And then afterwards, he, uh, he left the BCCSU and then accepted a high paid position at a cannabis company, which I think should raise a lot of eyebrows here. So you see this, this habits of harm reduction leaders uh, having very few scruples about accepting for-profit positions where they monetize off the consumption of drugs. And I think that any Canadian should be concerned about that. Well, I, I know money is a very powerful force. And even in academia, money is tied to research grants. And sometimes there's no money in uh, researching one thing, but there is in, in researching something else. But but just to go back to the story you told about your own shift on this, Dr. Koivu, you were not you know one of these evil, maniacal profit seekers when you thought this was in the best interest of, of patients. And, and looking around at your colleagues in, in medicine now that still very much believe in, in safe supply, which of those camps, to use the, the category Categories that Adam set out, do you think most of them fall in? Are, are they ideologues? Are they, you know, profit seekers? Or, or are they people that, you know, maybe they're not ideologues, but they genuinely believe that's where the science is leading? I think that it's it's a tough question, Andrew, because just to, to really know someone's motive can be a bit tricky. I think that what I'm seeing, my perspective would be that a lot of the people um, in this area, for example, are ideologues and that they really, it's become something they believe in. Um, at the, um, without uh, sort of like believing in it so much that they're not seeing the downsides, sort of like seeing your child and not seeing the harm that they could do, that they, they don't wanna see the harm. But having said that, um, the programs are receiving millions of dollars in funding so even if that's not something that people take home with them, there can be lots of reasons to want to keep that kind of funding for your organization that isn't directly profit-seeking. But with that million dollars, I think it's really important. For, you know, there I think it was $6 million for the program in London. None of that covers the cost of the drugs. So I'm not exactly sure what cost it covers, but it doesn't cover... The cost of the drugs that's covered by OHIP, that's covered by everybody else's, you know, um, tax dollars. It's not so profit. So any amount of funding from the federal government doesn't really cover the cost of the program. Um, but that funding for an organization like a, a community health center is really important funding. So I don't know how much is motivated by by a sort of desire to keep that kind of funding even if that's in the context of a belief that that funding will help people and help the organization. Um, so I think, it, I think it's very complicated, but I also think it's really interesting how um, hard it's been to express any, any concerns about the program. I've never felt, I, I, I was a very um, quick adapter of being critical of Purdue. I gave talks 
before it was the thing to do. And every time time I gave a talk, I was I would start by criticizing Purdue. And I remember being asked if I was worried about Purdue. And I wasn't. I, they never bullied me. I never felt unsafe to talk about it. But I have found that the environment has been very challenging to be able to say, this is what I'm seeing. I don't have a motive to say I'm seeing somebody who's quadriplegic and the suffering is horrific. The only motive I have is, is to end that suffering. So I don't have a personal gain or from it. I have the horror of the trauma of witnessing suffering. And when I express that suffering, I've almost literally been told that those patients don't exist. And I feel like tell that to those patients that I'm seeing suffering. I mean, I, I've been told they, that doesn't happen. They don't exist. Um, I think the other thing that I, I want to make sure gets out there is that increasing more opioids has done nothing to decrease fentanyl, which is often illicit fentanyl, toxic fentanyl. So, and the goal that is now claimed is that it's to be a safer alternative to toxic fentanyl. That hasn't happened. It's increased fentanyl in London. It increased overdose deaths in London. It's increased hospitalizations and ED visits in London. And looking at diversion hasn't been part of what the programs have done. Um, but looking at specifically, just looking at the kind of goal of, of decreasing toxic fentanyl, once people become addicted to an opioid, to get the same effect, they either have to take more of it or something stronger. And what I'm seeing over and over again are people that have started with safe supply or started with diverted opioids that then progress to using fentanyl. So if anything, I'm finding that it has absolutely worsened the fentanyl crisis in our area. Well, I that's the, go. yeah, let's uh, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, I, I just want to make a point of clarification for listeners who aren't aware of why Safer Supply doesn't dissuade people from using fentanyl. So Safer Supply programs in Canada predominantly distribute hydromorphone, which is an opioid which is roughly as potent as heroin, if not more potent. And that's dangerous for someone who is opioid naive. However, fentanyl is at least 10 times stronger than that, which means that for a fentanyl user, that because of their high tolerance, Hydromorphone doesn't actually do anything for them. At most, it manages their withdrawals, but it doesn't give them the euphoric high that they crave. So the actual premise of Safer Supply, that these drugs are uh, an actual substitute for fentanyl, doesn't check out at all. And it's important to note, so I've interviewed at least 25 addiction experts across Canada at this point, uh, most of whom said the exact same thing, you know, that it's crazy to imagine that hydromorphone could substitute for fentanyl. The ones who haven't said that, they've only haven't said that because we haven't talked about that topic. Um, but some might say, well, you know, these are a few addiction physicians. What, what do they know? Well, it's important for us to remember that Health Canada itself is aware of this issue. In March of 2022, they published a preliminary report evaluating their pilot safer supply projects all across Canada. And one of their central findings was that even maximum doses of hydromorphone didn't generate a high in fentanyl users, leaving people to go and sell it on the street to purchase more fentanyl. So Health Canada is aware that the central concept of their safer supply programs. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Let me ask you about that, Dr. Summers, because if there is such, you know, unanimity among certain pockets of this addictions uh, specialist community, as Adam said, why are people like you and, and Dr. Koivu seen as the dissidents here? I mean, wh where's the, the breakdown happening? Um, well, it plays out over decades, unfortunately, Andrew. So there's a, there's a big uh, there's a big gap in education. I've 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 taught clinicians in uh, medical schools and um, departments of of clinical psychology, nurses, um, and the amount of time allocated to education and addiction is scant. Um, so people finish and there and there's a lot to learn more and more as as clinicians. So um, we wind up with a, a big gap. Um, and we have, you know, like it's, it's a bit of an embarrassment that we're producing clinicians who reflexively draw a comparison between um, untreated addiction and diabetes. There's, there's no one in the clinical literature who has decided through a force of frustration and will to quit diabetes, right? No, no one, no one. But people do that all the time with addiction. And, it's, and, it's, and we need to learn from that in order to mobilize the factors that contribute to their not only their motivation. It's not it's not limited to that. It's about the conditions in which their motivation can be increased and actually expressed. That's what can give people the opportunity for wellness. Most people overcome addictions. There are more ex-smokers, at least in higher income countries. There are more ex-smokers alive than current smokers. And the same has been known for heroin, cocaine, alcohol, for decades. We don't teach the skills that mobilize clinicians capacity and relationships to advance that and so we wind up with this kind of you know well what do you what do you do what do you do and nothing because nothing has changed in neighborhoods like the downtown east side of where i live and in others clinicians have gone there and seen well this is like nothing changes here that's not because the people are incapable of change and that's one of my biggest frustrations is we've had the opportunity in canada um, at home chez soi was a multi-site ra randomized control several randomized controlled trials that that aimed to investigate if people deemed the hardest to house in in different regions of the country could in fact experience wellness the answer is a resounding yes with crime reduction with reductions in medical emergencies improvements in quality of life and social reintegration we started that work in 2008 Portugal had already shown the possibility at the population level because their whole plan revolves around social reintegration. That's a core construct in their national strategy, the 2000 national strategy, social reintegration. Now, having committed to that goal and realizing all of the improvements that they did over the next decade, it's important to note they did it without a single drug consumption site. The harm that's addressed by consumption sites includes not having safe places to live, being on the street and exposed to predation and violence. If one is committed to addressing those harms by providing people with safe places to live, you don't need consumption sites. So it's not a matter of are you for harm reduction or against harm reduction. It's about how should we best reduce the harms that are associated with drug use in our population. Portugal remains, I think, a, a real uh, uh, important test uh, or uh, 
a learning opportunity for us, a natural experiment. They built on the experiences in Switzerland and England before in previous decades. So there's, there is a, 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 a volume of evidence that hangs together both from other countries and experimentally in Canada that we're turning our backs on. And uh, the result is um, people who, have, uh, who are not aware of that literature um, making decisions. And as Adam said, you know, often with, the, with good intentions. We also have this weird dynamic where, um, look, addictions are, are diagnosed as mental disorders. At their core, they involve an agonizing frustration around loss of control. It's the loss of one's own control to influence behavior that is resulting in harm to oneself and often to others as well. And that's, that's a, a core dynamic in what we refer to as harmful addictions and why, and why they are so, uh, uh, why they um, um, uh, create such strong mental suffering. Um, and so we have this uh, um, weird dynamic where we're asking people who are likely experiencing addictions, a loss of control over behavior that causes harm to them, if they would like publicly funded drugs to be provided. Well, they have not had much reason to, to, to think that effective treatment is available or that there are um, uh, ways in which they can uh, gain greater control. And so, of course, they say yes. Of course, that would be beneficial. That would be an improvement over what they're currently doing. But it's the wrong question. We should be asking them, would you like access to the same resources that restore control that have been available to physicians who experience addictions for decades or airline pilots or in BC, public servants, because all of those groups and wealthy people, because all of those groups have access to forms of addiction treatment that focus on the psychological and the social and that preclude use of drugs, at least in the short term. And they are highly effective. If on the other hand, you are poor in Canada, there is no way for you to get access to psychological and social supports addressing addiction, and all we provide are drugs. And you, this is the practice of stigma. Any leader who says safe supply is about stigma reduction doesn't know the meaning of the word stigma because it, it is the definition of responding differently to two groups in the population based on how they look. If you look like a doctor, if you look like a public servant, an airline pilot, a safety-sensitive employee, we want to take care of you. We want you to have control of your life back, and we will help you get there. If you're poor, here you go. And we need to, we need to eliminate that discrepancy. Stigma reduction is the right cause. It's the wrong execution. No, that's a, a fascinating and, and quite quite upsetting analysis there. And, and when you talk about housing, what, one tweet that I, I wanted to bring up at some point in the show is that it illustrates that when you have one problem, it starts to skew your way of dealing with other problems. And this is a tweet from a, a Toronto uh, community worker that I, I think is involved with some of these organizations that are, are in the harm reduction space. And she writes, meth is a smart way to stay awake and avoid assault or theft on the street or in a shelter. This is 
someone who is looking at meth, which has destroyed people's lives and done so much damage and saying, well, this is actually a thing that will help you avoid being raped or assaulted or killed if you live in a shelter because you don't have a home. So it strikes me that the problem here is is actually the, maybe we should make sure that either shelters are safer or that people have a, a safe uh, place to be and, and not use meth as a harm reduction tool. And, and again, I'm, I'm you know extrapolating a fair bit from one tweet here, but, but it's that these problems are, as you say, Dr. Summers, very interconnected here. And I just wanna make a point that we've been talking about this and, and nowhere in this discussion has there been anything uh, unsympathetic to people with addiction. It's not looking at them. No one's saying we need to lock them up. And I think often in a political context, that's what people try to reduce this thing to, which is, you know, you're you're either anti-addicts or you're pro-harm reduction, which is not at all the case here. Uh, we are uh, out of time, but I just want to give the last word to, to you on, on this, Dr. Koivu, because when we are talking about uh, you know, the, the stigma issue here and, and the idea of, of treatment. Is there a viable model that you've seen to get us where we need to go? Or are we still looking for that? I think that there are definitely there are viable models. And I think we need to look at an integrated approach um, that looks at all the aspects of care. We know wraparound services, primary care, um, health care are, are essential. Housing is an essential part of um, being um, able to get um, ahead and, and away from an addiction. And I totally agree. It needs to be a safe place, not just a safe way of making an unsafe place da less dangerous in a very short term, um, promote so much danger and so much risk. That um, sort of like double downing on, you know, doing more bad bad on to bad because adding meth onto crystal meth, which causes all sorts of other diseases onto another thing that's, that's dangerous. Um, and, and then looking at other strategies, opioid agonist therapy, methadone and suboxone, um, sublocade are, are absolutely, I'm seeing huge amounts of, of improvement, life-changing improvement when people really get on an opioid agonist therapy program, often now because of the income associated with um, selling safe supply, diverting safe supply, that's less accessible. Um, because to give up safe supply, you're giving up primary care, wraparound services, and an income. We have to change that. That can't be where you get those services. We need to have an integrated approach. We need, we need to have an accessible, rapid access, good integration. We need to look at but what really happened in Portugal, not how people are translating the decriminalization to justify things that weren't Portugal's experience. We need to look at what Alberta is doing. We need to look at um, what really has, has been done in, in um, Switzerland and, and recognize the harm that we're doing and not be afraid to recognize the harm both to the individual involved that we're keeping, we're locking into an addiction. And, and the community and really look at why are there so many more encampments in London and why are just, you know, adding hubs, I mean, might be a, a short solution, but as long as we're creating an environment in which people want to be in the core, want to be near the diverted drugs, whether they were housed from another community and are coming into London to get the diverted drugs, we have to be looking at the source of the problems we're creating and stop the flood of that problem 
as we're creating an integrated approach. Very well said. That was Dr. Sharon Koivu, also Dr. Julian Summers, and Adam Zivo, columnist with the National Post. And by the way, uh, we talked about it on the show when it came out. I, I mentioned it at the beginning. Uh, the piece came out on May 9th, Drug Fail, the Liberal Government's Safer Supply is Fueling a New Opioid Crisis. It was probably one of the most uh, evocative and in-depth looks, lo in looks at this issue that I've seen. It features uh, Drs. Summers and Koivu and a number of other experts and you did a tremendous job on that, Adam. So uh, thanks for writing that and for coming on today. And everyone, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. That does it for us. My thanks again to Dr. Summers and Koivu and also to Adam Zivo for coming on the show. We will see you next week with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.